This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. And it's an absolute privilege. Jennifer Tsing, let's, let's hope I've got that correct. Jennifer. Hi, you, yes, you've got that correct. Um, my name is Jennifer Tseng, have you already said. I was born in China, in Sichuan province, in 1966. So that was the year when the Chinese, the China's Cultural Revolution began. My father was, uh, you know, discriminated or campaigned against because he was uh, Intellectual. So in those days, intellectuals were bad guys for the for the Chinese Communist Party. We call it the CCP. So he was relocated to for to a small little town to be really educated. So I spent uh, pretty much my childhood in a small town with my father. My mother was separated from us. Uh, somehow as a punishment. So I grew up in that small little town which had only 30,000 people population. I actually have done a series of TV of YouTube program about my childhood story and about my father called uh, The Story of My Father. If you search for The Story of My Father plus my name Jennifer Zeng, maybe you can find it on my YouTube channel. So anyway, I I was able to be admitted uh, to one of the top universities in China, which is Peking University or Beijing University, as somebody heard about it. So when, during my time in the university as a graduate student, I uh, participated in the protest uh, in Tiananmen Square in 1989. So I witnessed and experienced the crackdown of the tanks, you know, run on the street of Tiananmen Square. I escaped from Beijing several years, several days uh, after that the crime, the bloody crackdown, and then after that, we were again, again required by the party to, you know, to to give details of our involvement in in that crackdown. So got quite a lot of. A suppression there, but uh, somehow I was able to get out of there. And after I graduated from the university with a master's of science, I, my major was geochemistry. So, like you said, I went. I entered into the highest government uh, consultant and research body, which is called the Development and Research Center for the State Council. So I once wrote speeches for the Prime Minister of China then. Uh, so I, I worked there for several years. I got married. I gave birth to my child, to my daughter, and I encountered a very bad medical accident during childbirth, and I was given poisonous blood. And, and then I caught hepatitis C, and then I lied in hospital for several years without being able to work. And in 1997, I was introduced to uh, the practice of Falun Gong, which is an ancient mind, body, spirit, uh, holistic improvement system, uh, including meditation, five sets of gentle exercises, pretty much like Tai Chi, and three principles to follow in your daily life, which is 
choose compassion and forbearance or tolerance. So I practiced this for uh, only about one month to be totally, you know, recovered from all my previous health problems. I went back to work. I was full of energy again. It, I felt like being reborn, like a new person. And because of this very obvious um, health benefits, uh, the practice spread in China very, very quickly without any advertisement. People just uh, tell their families uh, word by word of mouth. So in seven years since it's in first introduced to the public in 1992. So in seven years, it had attracted somewhere between 70 to 100 million in China. So that number yeah, you know, was more than the Chinese Communist Party members. <laughs> so, so they felt threatened because of the sheer popularity and because of the, the number of people doing it. Although this practice, like I said, is a spiritual, uh, you know, self-improvement practice. It has no political agenda, but, you know, in China, it is a one-party country, so everything and this party was never uh, elected by the people. They acquired their power by, by a civil war and by force and by maintaining their power through lies and force for all these years. So it has a fundamental fear for its own, own legitimacy. So in 1999, the party launched an overwhelming crackdown Falun Gong. So thousands of thousands of practitioners be arrested and I was arrested myself for four times and then threw into a female labor camp and tortured very very badly there for one year and I witnessed so many uh, unimaginably cruel you know inhuman things happening in the camp like you said we could be killed uh, so that our organs could be sold for people who had the money to pay for it. And that is still happening now. So I spent one year and witnessing all this and I made up a very strong uh, mind that I, would, I need to survive all this so that I can write a book about it. So I it spent me another six months to try to, you know, to fight with the, or to, to try to fight in an un, invisible war with the police to try to convince them that I have been reformed or transformed, like they said, brainwashed by them. And, uh, you know, they, they force us to write, you know, denounce, denunciation, uh, statement and we were we would uh, we need to denounce our practice we need to criticize this Falun Gong and we need to help the police to help to help them to torture others to to prove that we have been transformed so every day I struggle with with the with the wish to go out of the prison so that I can finish writing my book and between that, I, I, sh I cannot let them find out that I have not been reformed. You, you couldn't, nobody could imagine how hard that struggle was. It almost killed me a, a thousand times because of 
this struggle in in my in my mind in my heart. I couldn't reconcile with myself. I couldn't. Sometimes I couldn't convince myself this is what you have to do or that is what I should do. So anyway, I was released in two thousand and one, and I was lucky enough because it was still initial age of the persecution. So I was lucky enough to be able to escape to Australia, and I uh, finished wrote my book、um, in Australia and got it published in both English and、uh, in Chinese. In around two thousand three and two thousand five, that's the English version. And then in two thousand and twelve or something, there was a documentary movie、uh, about my story called、mm. "Free China:、yeah. uh, The Courage to Believe." So then, and also since I escaped China and arrived in Australia, I started working. Uh, for the Epoch Times, that is a Chinese language newspaper. Then I, because I, from my own experience, I felt how brainwashed、uh, the the Chinese people, including overseas Chinese people, are, and because all the media in China is controlled by the party, so it controlled all the information in the world. Uh, news knows very little about the real situation and the real stories in China. So I involved myself with media. With I so I've been journalist,、uh, you know, editors, you know, TV producers for the past twenty years. And from last year on, I、uh, opened a YouTube channel called Inconvenient Truths by Jennifer Zheng. Uh, it's an English channel.、Uh, also, I've been in work for the Chinese department for many years. But from last year,、uh, that was the you know beginning stage of the pandemic. I felt it was very important to inform the world what's really happened in China in English because not many English or no English media you know, was covering the the real story、mm. in China, and I had. Knowledge. I had the expertise of Chinese affairs, and I know Chinese. I know English, so I opened up a YouTube channel last year. I also have my own website, JenniferZengBlog.com. So to share my、uh, information and my knowledge, my analysis about、uh, you know affairs in China with the world. So so that's pretty much my story so far. Are you safe, Jennifer? I mean. Ah,、uh, uh, yes and no. You know, it it is quite a a, a price to pay.、Uh, when back in two thousand and three, I think I I was still in Australia then. I、uh, because I、uh, filed a lawsuit against the CCP's leader Jiang Zemin for his persecution against Falun Gong. Uh, they arrested my husband in China. He was still in China then, and they threw him into jail. And they've always, always、uh, threatened、uh, blackmail my my family, my mother.、Mm. And、um, when my father was dying in two thousand fourteen, I wasn't, you know, allowed to go back to China. They always try to. Uh, gave me some conditions. If I want to go back to China, I need to agree 
to be a spy for the CCP to tell them all the information I know about overseas Falun Gong. They, they always regard us as an organization or something. Uh, so that's the precondition. If I don't uh, agree, they won't allow me to go back. So for all these years, things are uh, very, very hard to my family and my, now I should say, ex-husband. He had to divorce me because he maybe uh, felt all this pressure. He had to suffer as a consequences of being my husband was too much for him. So that's the price I had to pay for in all these years for speaking the truth about China. Why do you do it then, Jennifer? Why do you, why do you speak out? Uh, you know, on the first day when I was through into the labor camp, the first sound we heard is the crack of the black, uh, of the electric baton. And the first order we got is squat. And on the first day we were forced to squat, you know, like this, mm. uh, uh, under the sun for 15 hours. And whenever there were also many elderly women, and whenever they couldn't endure it, sometimes they fainted away, they passed out, and the police just applied the electric buttons on them to wake them up so that they could continue to uh, squat under the sun. And in order to torture us to, so that we can reform, because they, the, the police had a quota to achieve, 95% they have to reform us, which, is, which means to force us to give up, to give up our faith in Falun Gong. Just like the Christ, the, in the early days of Christianity, they forced Christians to, to give up their faith in Jesus, something very similar like that. So they, they torture you know, people every day. I, there was a young woman who was tied to a chair and the four or five male police guards applied electric baton on her private part that no. she lost control of her bowel movement. And the screams of people under torture, I could hear them every day. So I developed such a, I had a, for some moment I thought, am I in China now or am I in a Nazi concentration camp? I, I read about in history book. I never imagined this kind of thing could still be happening just around me and in the so-called new China. And somewhere, you know, the neighbor camp was only about 20 kilometers away from Tiananmen Square. It was in a county. So I just couldn't believe it. And every day people die or people were driven into insanity because they couldn't endure the torture. From October 2000, um, they adopted a new policy whenever who was sent to the camp. As long as you don't uh, give up your belief, you are not given any sleep at all, day and night, day and night. They have, you know, people in different shifts to, to watch over you to make sure you stay awake. So, and when I was in the camp, the longest period I knew was 15 days, 15 nights, 
straight out, no sleep at all. So when I saw that kind of viciousness happening around me, I developed such a strong desire. This is just inhuman. It's just anti-humanity. It's just unimaginable crime. And I have such a strong uh, desire to stop them, to stop all the crimes. Because I saw people being tortured. If we don't stop it, and I do did realize if because this party, if they could apply this kind of torture to us Falun Gong practitioners today, tomorrow they can expand it to another group like Uyghurs. Like now they expand the same kind of tactics and torture methods to Uyghurs and now to Hong Kongers. And the next day, everybody could become a victim. So I think as someone who survived all this, who witnessed all this, I have this kind of Somehow I regard this is my mission to mm. tell the truth because this is our our own future. And if we don't stop, especially after I left China, I see the world for a long time, they somehow uh, purposely or maybe it's just out of ignorance, they look the other way when we talk about the persecution of the CCP, they, they pretend they, they, they didn't know, or even like the organ harvesting. It was first exposed in 2006, and at that time, and as very few people, I think, were willing to accept this fact, because as soon as you accept, okay, this could be true, everybody was immediately faced with uh, some kind of moral demand. If this is happening, what should you as a fellow human being do to stop it? This is sheer anti-humanity, this kind of crime. So I think the world wasn't prepared uh, to look into the eyes of this kind of evil then, but somehow somebody had to carry on otherwise. Uh, I, I saw, I foresaw the, all the crimes the CCP could, could do to, to, the, to, the, to the, all the world, to all human beings, because through my own uh, experience, I know how evil they could be. And they, if we don't stop them um, today, they were expanded to, to the world tomorrow. And now I think the whole world is suffering one way or the other because we didn't stop the CCP when they did evil. Maybe 20, 30 years ago, 20 years ago, the persecution of Falun Gong has been still, it is still going on today while we are talking. Millions of people are still suffering in labor camps, jails, prison, prisons, even mental hospitals were used to jail Falun Gong practitioners because what, there are so many there. What makes Falun Gong so scary to the Communist Party? I mean, from what from what I understand, it's just a way of life that's very peaceful and tolerant. It's sort of like a uh, a combination of of Tao and Buddhism. I mean, it, there's nothing threatening about it. I think, like I said before, first of all, it's, it is its popularity. And secondly, I think because Falun Gong uh, 
believes in truth, compassion, and forbearance. And I think the nature of all these three principles is exactly the opposite of what the CCP is. The CCP tells lies. It uh, you, you know it maintains its power through through violence. So its nature is totally just the exactly the opposite of what Falun Gong promotes and believes. So the high moral standard of Falun Gong embarrassed itself. Mm-hmm. And also I think, like I said, it's a one party country and it, it has actually not only target Falun Gong, when it first acquired power in China, it actually eliminated all religions as illegal. It, uh, it uh, smashed the temples, it forced monks and uh, nuns to go back to your home, and all, all religions are evil according to the CCP doctrine. It uh, wants to eliminate all religions so that it can portray itself as the only God, although it doesn't uh, are recognized there is God or there are other higher beings or there are heavens and hells. Uh, it is, you know, Marxism only believe in, in what we are, what we can see now. It doesn't believe in the existence mm. of God, but it won't itself be the God. So everybody have to uh, believe in, in the party and follow the party and listen to the party and be a party slave. And now there are suddenly this group of people uh, they they believe in something else, and they they are self you know you can say sufficient. They they as long as they can uh, practice their their practice, they are happy. They don't need the party to give them happiness. So that's something I think uh, let the party feel threatened. And also the party, like the party leader Mao Zedong once said, every seven or eight years we need to have another cultural revolution because it needs to maintain a kind of fear or kind of class struggle in a society. So everybody struggle against everybody else and a kind of fear in a society. So nobody will have the time or ability to question the legitimacy of the party. So so it not only target Falun Gong, not we, we've talked about they've targeted Uyghurs as well and in all these years since the CCP took power it it targeted almost everybody in the society. First of all it's the landlords, everybody who owned a piece of land were killed. I think around two million landlords were killed when they when the CCP first took in, took power in 1949, uh, uh, and they seized all the lands. So now they, they claimed everybody uh, collectively on all the land of the country, right? Right? Lands are collective ownership of the land. And after that, they kill, you know, all the business owners in the city. They, they call them capitalists. So every, their businesses were taken over by the party and again it became uh, like they called uh, collective uh, ownership of all the party or state-owned companies uh, and then they, 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 they targeted the intellectuals in it anti-righteous uh, campaign half a million intellectuals were labored as 
rightists, and then persecuted for many many years. And then it's the Cultural Revolution, and the Great Leap Forward movement. In during that movement, I think thirty to forty million people were starved to death. Good、so、things. and then after the 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 Cultural Revolution, it's the Tiananmen Massacre, and ten years after Tiananmen Massacre, it's the persecution of Falun Gong, and then it's the persecution of Uyghur people in Xinjiang. So it it's not only the problem of Falun Gong. Actually, if you if you、uh, look around, almost every、yeah. group and all the religions got persecuted. It's anything that isn't approved by the party. Yes, you have to proved by the party. I think that when the Falun Gong was inter- first introduced to the public in 1919, too, the party first I think、uh, approved it.、Uh, like like、uh, they 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 want to、uh, put it under its own control. And in in the initial stage, they some party officials encouraged it because it、uh, it has health benefit. If people become healthy, they save medical fees for the com- for the country、mm. for the government. I myself saved huge amount of medical fee for the government because when I was sick, I was still a government, you know,、um, staff member. So all my、uh, medical、uh, fee should be、uh, and was covered by the government by then. But after I practice, I saved a lot of money. So initially, the government、uh, encouraged this practice, and then when they when they saw oh there were too many people practicing it, that's when it became a problem for them. Well, I can tell you that if the Chinese Communist Party doesn't approve of Falun Gong, I think then we need to、uh, start buying Falun Gong books. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it must be something good. Yes, <laughs> yes. Actually, by the way, Falun Gong books and everything about Falun Gong is free on the internet. There is a website called falundava dot org. Falun is F A L U N D A F A falundava dot org. So it's、uh, the the main book now is available in forty different languages, all translated by volunteers, and they, everything is free freely download from the internet, inter- including you know uh, medi- uh, music exercise music exercise、sure. instruction. If you go to your nearby park to do it,、um, if there are other Falun Gong practitioners, everybody will teach you for free. So everything is free, and you are free to go. There is no membership, no registration. Oh wow! You, you can just go and、uh, and come as you like. So it's just very freely. Why didn't people who were in the camps just simply say, "Okay, I'm converted. I'm transformed." Wouldn't that just have been easier?、Uh, yes and no. You know,、uh, for for myself, for and and I can say that for many Falun Gong practitioners, we regard truth, bodies, compassion, and forbearance very seriously as a faith. Like、uh, Christians cannot,、uh, you know, blam blam、uh, say bad words about Jesus, right? And because the first、uh, principle we follow is truthfulness. If we think truthfulness is good, we cannot tell any lies. 
So why that's why it was so hard for me uh, when I wanted to convince them that I have been transformed, but at the same time I did not still did not want to tell a single little line. So everybody mm. I play you know, word games with them, try to avoid saying anything truthful, but try to avoid saying anything false. You know how hard it I, I tried to not to tell a lie as long as as hard as I could. And for a Falun Gong practitioner I think they regard these principles are very important and are not to be abandoned or violated under any circumstances. If those, if there's no uh, principle in the world, everybody just can do whatever he likes, uh, then the consequences will be disastrous to the world. We realized this, so we are willing to start from ourselves. Mm. So it's a very serious faith in truth, compassion, and forbearance. It's not an empty word. So that's why the CCP uh, couldn't understand us because they just open their mouths and tell a lie very easily every day they tell lies. So they don't understand why there are a group of people who are not willing to tell a lie. They just couldn't mm. understand that. We are behaving I think uh, according to a different standard, our standard is choose compassion for parents and we, we choose to follow that. You also mentioned organ harvesting. You- yes, um, it means, you know, if uh, you need an organ, you know, there are many people, they have a heart failure or they have an organ, they have a liver failure, they need a new organ to, 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 to survive, to live on. But in, uh, in ordinary countries, it is very hard to get one because you have to wait maybe for years for somebody who happened to die in a car accident and whose organ have to be match your blood type and tissue type. And then you are lucky you can get that one after maybe waiting for years. But in China, uh, if you say I need an organ, they, they promise they can find you a match within two weeks. Sometimes on the same day, you, you wow. know, it's, it's like a joke. So how could they do that? Uh, I didn't know when it started, but it must be sometime after they cracked on Falun Gong because mm. of the sheer number of Falun Gong practitioners, are, they arrested so many. Before they cracked down Falun Gong, I think start maybe as early as 1960s, they used executed prisoners' organs, wow. but on a very, maybe very small scale, and to use those kind of organs, and then for some maybe high-ranking CCP officials who need an organ, but that's only a small number because uh, in in I think in a year there were only maybe of some. 2,000 people who will be sentenced to death. And maybe only 10% of that those people's organs are of good quality and can be used. So it can't be become a business. But after the crackdown of Falun Gong, there are millions of people arrested. So I don't know who figured out why if we can't transform or reform these people or brainwash them, why can't we make use of their organs and 
uh, we we just keep them as a living organ bank. And so uh, whenever somebody lit our organ, we can you know find a match in that bank and kill that person so that we can sell his or her organs. That's how the business started. It was first revealed back in 2006 by a nurse in the hospital uh, called Su Jia Tun in northeast China. Her husband actually was a surgeon who had removed the corneal from Falcon practitioners, more than 2,000 of them. He, that one doctor alone. So this nurse found her husband was very nervous. Sometimes he had bad, bad you know, nightmare. And she found suddenly there was so much cash in her house and US dollars cash, hundreds of thousands. And then she started feel something was terribly wrong and she pushed her husband who confessed to her what he did. And he found one of the people he operated on was actually alive. That's when he felt all of this was totally wrong. So this couple escaped China to Canada in 2006. And that was the first time she revealed the case. But you know, at that time, nobody uh, did any serious investigation into her. We can only call allegations then. But that was first time when she uh, revealed such thing uh, happening. And then from then on, many more and more organizations or individuals started doing the investigation in it. And if you put all the uh, stories together, there's so much, I think, evidence there that can very convincing evidence. Like myself, I, I quote back what I experienced in the camp. I was given, you know, physical checkups three times and then our blood were, you know, taken and uh, I couldn't understand at that time why on the one hand they torture us to death, but on the other hand, they care about our physical status, they check our body, check our blood, but we were never uh, never told what's the purpose for the physical checkups and why they, they took our blood and stored it somewhere. And then when I heard her story, I understood because they need to uh, know our blood type so they, they can store it in a computer so that they can find a match for you. And I personally met a doctor, a very uh, famous doctor in Israel in 2007 when I visited Israel and he told me his, his own story. He said he had a patient in Israel who was waiting for a heart for for a year without getting one and one day his patient suddenly told him oh i'm going to fly to uh, my, my insurance company found, found uh, a match for me to uh to shanghai i'm going to fly to shanghai and my heart transplant was scheduled on such and such a day and when the doctor heard this he was very surprised because a heart can't survive uh, after maybe only hours after you leave the, the body. So 
In, in the trans transplant uh, industry, you can never pre-schedule a heart transplant because you don't know when you can get a heart. If you just wait for somebody to die in a ac car accident or whatever other accident, how can you pre-schedule a heart transplant? So he felt something terribly wrong, but he couldn't figure out. That was in 2005. So one year later, when the organ harvesting story, live, we call it live organ harvesting or kill people on demand. When he heard that story, he immediately uh, believed in it because he already figured his thought uh, so hard for one year and he couldn't get it. Because I think no normal human being would imagine this kind of crime could happen. So he felt something terribly wrong because he never knew that a heart transplant can be pre-scheduled on such a day. And then he, he, he immediately believed in the story and he pushed for a law to be passed in Israel, which forbidden Israel, Israelis to go to China to get an organ. Otherwise, it's a criminal offense and your, your medical bill will not be covered. So that's I think he had enough strong evidence to convince the parliament in Israel to pass that kind of a law. And there are only, I, I personally heard there are many uh, telephone investigations. Some investigators, you know, pretend to be someone who need an organ, who call the hospital to say, hey, I need an organ, can you get me one? They say, oh, yes. And uh, when, and maybe uh, in, in, in two weeks, and do you have fungal organs? Yes, we do have. So we have uh, a lot of telephone in conversations of this kind uh, recorded. And they, they, I think the biggest convincing uh, piece of evidence is the waiting time. Like I said, in other countries, it's years. Uh, in Australia, you need uh, an average 11 years to wait for a heart. But in China, two weeks or one week. And sometimes they do so-called emergent transplant. They can do it within 24 hours if, if you need it. And also you look at the numbers. Like I said, there were altogether uh, 2,000 deaths uh, sentence in a year, but every year in China, the official numbers, they do 10,000 organ transplants, but the unofficial number is 100,000. So where do all these organs come from? They can never ever give you an explanation. So I think many organizations and including an individual, I think court in London last, not it's two years ago, in 2019, they did their own investigation. And they also uh, came to the conclusion that this thing is happening and on a very large scale in China. So that's called, uh, you know, kill on demand to take out your organs, to sell your organs. That's a huge billion dollar business. For Kill the on demand. Yes. So that's why they promise you they can get an organ for you, you know, in weeks or in days or in 22 hours. I'm speechless. 
Yes, and the number is terrible, terrible. So it it has been happening for twenty years. If one year it's only, you know, ten thousand, you plus twenty years, that's still hundreds of thousands. If you plus one hundred thousand per year, that two million. So that's that's how terrible this affair is. That's the official number, and they if you check the numbers of the how many hospitals are doing it now and how many beds are there, there are some very thorough investigation. They list all the uh, the, the hospitals in China, thousands of them who are doing this and how many beds are. And every hospital they announce their bed so so called house. Uh, occupation rate, how many beds are occupied, how many beds are empty. So you, you connect all the numbers and they come, came to the conclusion. So the, the investigations are very solid because these numbers are all connected from the hospital's numbers themselves. If you connect or you plus all the and all the numbers of all the hospitals and the beds and how many transplants are they are doing. All these numbers can just cannot end up with how many. The initially the CCP did denied they are used this to prisoners' organs because that is also against international norm in international world. You know, in our, we donate, we agree to donate our organs. That's how people have got new or new organs in, in accident or whatever. But in China, there is no such kind of of donation system. So initially, they use this to prisoners, and then then they find oh they because they couldn't explain, they, they, they initially denied they are using, you know, death uh, prisoners' organs. Then when they couldn't explain the, their source of the organs, they admitted that they did use the death prisoners' organs. But still, the number, there were only maybe 2,000 death uh, execution every year. They couldn't, still couldn't, and up explain the large number of transplants they are doing every day. They just couldn't uh, tell us where all where did all these organs come from. And so they also wanted your organs too. Yes, I was also uh, uh, being given three different uh, tests, and uh, including the blood test in in jail. So I'm pretty much sure they actually had a doctor invest, uh, interrogate us about our medical history. Uh, I did tell him, like I said, I had blood, uh, hepatitis C because of the blood transfusion. So uh, later on when I knew this, this organ harvesting, I seriously doubt it was because I told the uh, doctor I had hepatitis C before I practiced Balangong, maybe that's is what saved me from becoming uh, a victim. But I was given blood test in, in the labor camp together with all the other fellow prisoners there. What is, what is the end game, Jennifer? What is the Chinese Communist Party wanting? Is it wanting control of the world? Is it wanting as much yes. control as it can get? What, wh- wh- yes. Why are they doing this? I think it was written in the communist, 
communism's manifesto hundreds of years ago when Karl Marx first wrote that novel in 18-some years. It says, uh, liberate uh, all humanity is the uh, final mission of proletarianism or working class. So, so that's actually in the communist, communism manifesto from the beginning. And when the Chinese Communist Party took power, they always talk about liberating all humanity, all human beings. That's their goal. Only after, uh, you know, Deng Xiaoping came in power in some, 20, I think in 20, uh, nine, uh, 1970, uh, he, he stopped talking about that. He talked about, oh, we need to reform. We need to do uh, economic reform, opening up to the world. We need to learn the technology from the West. So the West was, uh, uh, I think, deceived into being believing maybe the CCP had abandoned their goal to conquer the world and become part of the civilized world. So the West gave the CCP money, technology, everything for it to develop. That's how the CCP could develop so fast in the past 40 years. But when uh, they, be they believed they had already gained enough power and money and wealth, it started talking about conquer the world again. Only it's now using a different term. Uh, the CCP's head Xi Jinping now used the word a shared uh, community uh, or a shared future for a common community, something like that. Uh, so it's it's just a different term, but the essence is the same. The CCP want to conquer and control the whole world. That's why it's promoting its one belt, one road project everywhere. I think in, in Africa, it's, it's heavily invest, in, in, invested in Africa and uh, Many countries, they believe they can buy over with money and then to expand its geopolitical power uh, all over the world. Uh, and now when we realize it, I think the CCP was already everywhere in the world. As you know, I, I live on the African continent. Um, am I endangered? Yes, I think Africa is actually during Mao Zedong's time. He talked about oh, Africa and Latin America are our friends, our brothers, because he felt uh, at that time the CCP only wanted to be the leader of the so-called third world countries. So it, I think, gave many benefits to these third world countries. That's how it got itself into the United Nations because every nation has a equal vote in the United Nations. So, and now there were many universities trying to recruit students from Africa countries, offering them a lot of benefits, including maybe you can have a female students studying together with you that sort of thing because they think Africa because most many Africa countries uh, need uh, the money from the CCP they want to buy buy you over so that you become a vote for them in the 
in the United Nations, and then they can somehow control you, take you into part of their circle. Uh, I think they, the ambition there is very obvious. If they have the opportunity, they, they may also try to start some internal um, trouble mm. for, for each country so that everyone needs to seek some uh, external help and then the CCP can offer you. Do you think the Chinese Communist Party um, can engage in bio-warfare as a way to, to take more control politically? Yes, I think they've been openly talking about it. If you uh, check my Twitter, I have some videos translated uh, from Chinese into English. They openly there uh, military experts talking about it many years ago that if we want to conquer the world or if we can win the uh, competition worldwide, the biological war is very important. And I think it's uh, PLA, People's Liberation uh, Army, that's the CCP's army, a general uh, talk about two, I think in around 2003, a speech of him was leaked on the internet. He openly talked about, uh, we need to lead our Chinese people to go out of China. And uh, they realized they've polluted all the lands in China. So, and he said they, the land uh, in America is so good. Uh, their rivers are still clear and we need to clear America. He did use the word clear America. Wow. Get rid of their people and then we take over their land. We get our people, we need our people go out of China so that the people will follow our party forever because we need them. We are in the need to do to do everything. So they and they, they, they've written a book called Unrestrained Warfare. So biological war is definitely one of the uh, the, the method they talked about openly uh, in, in these years. So and they did uh, if we uh, uh, check the the studies or research they did, they did uh, uh, research the virus for many years. They mm. published some papers and they did the gain of function research and they uh, also studied trans species uh, uh, infection of the virus. So that sort of thing, if you don't want to spread the virus, why? If you only want to prevent and treat the virus, why did you do gain of function study? So I don't, I do think they have the motivation to do it and they have been doing it. But of course, we don't have direct uh, evidence that mm. this is a bioweapon. But I think we have a lot of evidence that this virus came from the Wuhan lab and they had been trying so hard to cover up. Uh, this this affair, especially in the initial stage of the outbreak. Wow, Jennifer, it's it's quite scary, isn't it? Um, yes. You, I mean, you're obviously Chinese. Do you, are you are you still passionate about China? Do you still love China, even though you don't yes. live there? Yes, I I think actually when I was uh, studying in the university at that time. 
most all my classmates wanted to go to study in the U.S. My teacher also uh, left China, but I didn't. I stayed because I really love China. I really love the language. I love the people. I never dreamed about going out, out of China then. But, you know, like I told when I first, the first time when I seriously thought about leaving China is when I was in the neighbor camp, when I decided to write this book. By the way, my book is called Witnessing History, mm. One Woman's Fight for Freedom and Falun Gong. So if you search for that, you can get a copy from either, uh, I think, Amazon, that's a second-hand e uh, electronic book, or from my publisher in, in Australia. So, so that's what the first time I wanted to leave China. So I do care a lot still because my family is still in China, my mother, my sisters my other uh, families, my classmates, my friends. And I think the country is a great country. It has. I, it is the only country in the world which has a continuous 5,000 years of civilization. And the language was beautiful. The people was beautiful before the CCP took power. And uh, I think the CCP really did a lot of damage into uh, to the to the Chinese culture, Chinese nation, and Chinese people, I, and I do hope this nation can get rid of this party and get rid of the poison that imposed them by the party, and then revive their traditional culture, which is very very beautiful. And uh, and with that kind of beautiful culture, China can really become a very benign member of the family of the of the international world Jennifer you are an inspiration it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you thank you so much for having me my name is Jim this is Jim Warfare if you enjoyed this podcast please visit supportgerm.com 